Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good day and thank you for standing by. And welcome to the Linamar Q1 2021 Earnings Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. If you require any further assistance, please press star then 0. Please be advised that this conference is being recorded. I would like to hand the conference over to Lina Moore, CEO, Linda Hazenfratt. Thank you. Please go ahead. Thanks very much. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our first quarter conference call. Joining me this afternoon are members of my executive team, Jim Gerald, Dale Schneider, Roger Fulton, Mark Stoddard, and some members of our corporate IR, marketing, finance, and legal teams. Before I begin, I will draw your attention to the disclaimer currently being broadcast. I'll start off with a short update on the COVID-19 crisis and Linamar's current focus. Our approach to this last leg of the pandemic is the same as the first a year ago as we continue to focus on our employees, shareholders, communities, and customers in our Linamar Health First plan. In this stage of the pandemic, our focus is really in three key areas. First, ensuring we continue to have a safe workplace where we remain vigilant about following protocols and implementing regular testing and encouraging and enabling high vaccination rates. We are big believers that regular testing is key to controlling community spread and the only way along with vaccinations that we get back to normal. We have also been very focused on communication with our people and communities about the importance of vaccination, which along with testing, again, is how we keep ourselves safe, uh, our loved ones safe and healthy, and how we get back to normal. Given we are normally not seeing transmission of the virus in our plants, some may question why we decided to implement this rapid testing in our Guelph uh, core plants of more than 9,000 people twice weekly. And the answer is pretty simply, you are most contagious in the one to three days before you show your first symptoms. You may be positive, not yet feel sick, and be actively spreading the virus to others in your family or community. And if we can stop that, our community spread goes down and everyone stays safer. Uh, and vaccination is the last key area of focus for us. We launched our vaccination clinic in early March after four weeks of focus work by our team. We have vaccinated 11,235 people already in our two months in operation and expect to ramp up more significantly this month as more vaccine becomes available. We actually have capacity to do 2,000 shots per day given enough vaccine. To assist other companies interested in launching their own clinic, we have developed a playbook with all the information needed to enable an even quicker time to launch. The playbook is posted on our website and we encourage the information to be shared and hopefully utilized. Okay, with that, let's jump into some of the specifics about the quarter and we'll start off as usual with sales, earnings, and content. 
I should mention at the outset that we have renamed our transportation segment mobility to better reflect the broader business focus of this side of our business. All of our reporting has been updated to reflect the new te te uh, terminology, and I will do my very best not to slip up and use the wrong word today. Sales for the quarter were $1.78 billion, up 15% from last year. The auto sector continues to perform very well in North America and Asia, and launching programs are driving better volumes and margins. Global vehicle markets were up 14.7%, driving some great market rebounds. The cloud on the horizon, of course, were customer plant shutdowns related to shortfalls in the supply of semiconductor chips. Macdon also saw a very strong quarter, driving much of the industrial segment growth over the last year, although we are at last seeing Skyjack markets recovering. Market share growth in targeted regions in both industrial businesses also helped to boost sales. Normalized net earnings are up 133% to $158.3 million, driven by the strong sales growth, of course, as well as cost reductions, that have been implemented and government support programs. The change in FX rates from last year also provided a tailwind this quarter. In North America, contract per vehicle for the quarter was $196.05, another new record level, up 14.6% over last year, with customers we have a heavy waiting with also seeing the biggest market share gains. Vehicle production levels were down 3.9% compared to last year due to those chip shortages. However, our automotive sales in North America grew 10.2%. It should be noted that powertrain plant closures do tend to lag vehicle plant closures typically. This is relevant, although, although we did feel an impact in the chip shortages in Q1, we expect to likely feel a bigger impact in Q2. Uh, this would also serve to enhance North American content for vehicles somewhat in Q1. In Europe, content for vehicle dropped a little to $82.81 in a market that was uh, slightly down due to our customer mix resulting in modest automotive sales declines in comparison to last year. The market in Europe continues to be difficult with continued showroom shutdowns and the resultant impact on consumer demand as well as complications from chip shortages. Production levels and as a result, CPD are likely to remain volatile until the region settles out once we move into the post-pandemic period. In Asia, content for vehicle increased significantly again to $13.51, up 25.4% over last year, with key customers seeing strong market share gains in certain products, as well as additional sales from launching programs uh, in a market that was also up 32.4%. Recall nearly all pandemic-related production hits in 2020 for Asia were actually concentrated in Q1. So this gave us a 66.4% boost to automotive sales in the region to 147.4 million. Global automotive sales were up in the quarter, driven mainly by the strong growth in North America and Asia. Commercial and industrial sales were up 25.2% in the quarter, mainly due to strong Macdon performance, although Skyjack is now seeing some growth over prior year as well. Healthcare sales were also up over prior year, as the final ventilator program units were delivered and synaptive deliveries of robotic digital surgical microscopes began. 
Carefully managing CapEx continues to be a key theme for us in Q1. We were down significantly in CapEx from last year at $59.5 million of spend. For the full year 2021, we expect to see an increase from last year, but still at the low end of our normal range of 6 to 8% in order to continue to be somewhat conservative. Lindemar's utilization of flexible programmable equipment is the key factor in allowing us flexibility in times of market softness to continue to tool up new business without requiring significant capex. This is a massive advantage that Lindemar has in comparison with competitors who may invest in more dedicated equipment, which although cheaper and often requiring less labor, is not easy to reallocate to new programs or to scale the line to match actual capacity needs. We have continued our track record of generating free cash flow despite the pressures of working capital normally seen in the first quarter of the year. We generated $166 million of free cash flow and expect to see solidly positive free cash flow for the full year of 2021. We have $1.6 billion of liquidity available to us as well, which is also outstanding. Our strong balance sheet and liquidity mean we have the ability to take on takeover work or acquisitions as they arise in an opportunistic market and drive even more growth for us. The solid cash flow has allowed us to reduce net debt levels. Net debt now sits at $309 million, which is down now over $1.85 billion from its peak in early 2018, despite the pressures of the pandemic. Leverage likewise improved dramatically to now 0.3 times last 12 months EBITDA. Turning to a market outlook, we are seeing markets sharply up across the board this year, which shouldn't come as a surprise after a tough 2020. Industry experts are predicting solid growth in light vehicle volumes globally this year to 15.7 million, 18.6 million, and 44.3 million vehicles in North America, Europe, and Asia, respectively. Next year, we'll see continued growth in the mid to high single digits. On highly medium heavy truck volumes are expected to be solidly up in North America and Europe this year, but down in Asia. Next year, we will see continued growth, moderate in North America, stronger in Europe, but again down in Asia. Industry experts predict double-digit growth in the access market in North America and Europe this year and next year, coming off a very tough 2020 as construction projects start to ramp back up and consumer confidence builds post-pandemic. Asia will continue to grow, but a little less strongly than what we saw last year. Backlog is meaningfully up from prior year at more than double the level we were at in Q1 2020. Lastly, industry is predicting solid growth in the combined uh, Draper header market this year in double digits in North America, Australia, and CIS and mid-single digits in Europe and South America. The order book is up significantly from last year with farmers feeling more confident with a, a rally in commodity prices, a good harvest last year, and a perception of a more stable international trade environment. Looking at a little more detail, on the auto side you can see a pattern of recovery in every region on vehicle sales in comparison to prior year. Notably, once we hit the months where declines are, uh, were really starting to hit last year. China is quite consistently up in double digits. Europe a little bit up and down based on lockdowns, 
and North America consistently trending higher. In fact, vehicle sales in North America are nearing record levels. April 2021 FAR in North America was the second highest in recorded history. March 2021 was the third highest SAR in history. This while vehicle bills are constrained by chip shortages. What this means is we should expect robust production levels once the chip issue is solved and a sustained period of strong performance while the industry catches up to demand and rebuilds vehicle inventories to normal levels. In looking at production levels compared to what was forecast at our last conference call at the beginning of March, you can see a slightly stronger Q1 than was forecast, really driving out of a stronger recovery in China. Q2 is now expected to be a little softer than we thought in March. Again, this is because of the ongoing chip shortage issue, which is trimming another 1.1 million units out of production in Q2. This is, there's a similar story for the full year, so that same really 1.1 million units uh, are impacting the overall full year uh, performance for 2021. Now that said, production in Q1, Q2, and 2021 full year are all up significantly from 2020. Q1 was at 14%, Q2 58% is the forecast, and 2021 full year 12%, so double-digit growth across the board. The impact of the chip shortage and other supply chain issues seems to be changing day to day and is very difficult to predict. We will have a better sense for you as we see how things play out in the next six weeks and can provide an update with our mid-quarter market update that we'll provide in early July. Looking at the access market in more detail, you can see first that all three markets showed growth over prior year in the first quarter, which is very positive. Further growth for the full year in core North American and European markets are expected to be even better, which is a great sign. Equipment utilization levels continue to look positive. In Q1 2021, utilization levels were between 95% and 105% of 2019 levels, and well ahead of last year's levels, which is also a very good sign. In much of April, utilization was 98% to 102% of 2019 levels, so continued improvements uh, happening through the year. Double-digit growth is expected in core North American and European markets in 2021 and in 2022. The strong backlog already noted at Skyjack supports this and should drive double-digit sales growth at Skyjack this year and next year. In the agricultural business, we're seeing a very optimistic outlook in North America, in particular for double-digit growth this year after a soft 2020. Q1 combine retails in North America were 17% up from prior year, with a stronger showing in Canada, which was up 21%, and U.S. also showing strongly at up 16%. International markets are predicting high single-digit or double-digit growth pretty much across the board. MapDon continues to build market share in international markets with strong growth and market share growth in all of Australia, South America, Europe, and CIS over the last 12 months. Order intake is significantly ahead of last year at this time, indicating double-digit sales growth for MapDon this year as well, and an expectation of continued growth in 2022. So turning to an update on growth as well as our outlook, you'll be pleased to know that we had another solid quarter in new business wins. 
I'm going to highlight uh, some of our more strategic wins in a moment. But first, electrified vehicles continue to provide great opportunities for us. In fact, more than a third of business wins in the quarter were for electrified vehicles, which likewise make up a substantial share of the book of business that we are currently pursuing. You can see a steady build here in our global content for vehicles for battery electric vehicles. That's the gray outline, uh, which is getting very close to the internal combustion uh, blue line on this chart. The lines are converging, which of course is the goal. Our content per vehicle in electric vehicles is predicted to surpass that of hybrids, as you can see, within a couple of years, as we see more and more battery electric vehicle wins. Our strategy for pursuing electrified vehicles is diverse in many aspects, which actually allows us to really maximize opportunities for growth. And we've tried to capture that on this slide. First, we have a, a diverse lineup of products in various areas of the vehicle, from propulsion systems to structural and body parts to power system solutions and full chassis solutions. We are targeting pass cars as well as commercial vehicles, trucks of every class, and off-road vehicles. We are targeting all types of electrified propulsion, battery electric, hybrid, and fuel cell electric vehicles. We're targeting traditional OEMs and new entrants to the vehicle field, uh, to the electric vehicle field very successfully. And finally, we're open to a variety of scalable solutions for our customers, from individual components to sub-assemblies to full systems. And I think the last point is really important, as our customers are still developing their own manufacturing strategies in that regard. Being flexible means you get on the platform one way or another, and as the incumbent, are in a much better place to take on more responsibility as the OEMs evolve their strategies. We believe being sourced onto as many new electrified platforms as possible in any way is absolutely key in this emerging market. The strategy is paying off as we win business in all of these different areas and a variety of combinations as such. Once again, the flexibility of Lindemar's strategy is key to our success. Equally important to success in an electrified future is the flexibility of our manufacturing assets. Lindemar has long believed in the importance of using flexible, programmable equipment in our production lines to allow us to maximize utilization of our investment and better scale and match line capacity to fluctuating demand. What that means is the same equipment can be used to make a variety of types of parts with minimal investment in new tooling and programming. And that means that capital assets that are currently employed in Linamar's operations today can be adapted to manufacture electrified components at little incremental cost as volumes on internal combustion engine vehicles decline and volumes on electrified vehicles grow. So for instance, the same gear grinding equipment can produce gears for electric vehicle e-axles and for internal combustion engine powertrains alike, as you can see illustrated on this slide. The same is true for our lathes, our machining centers, our heat treat equipment, straighteners, slime rolling equipment, etc. The list goes on. There's some equipment, of course, which is more product specific, like assembly equipment, for instance, but even these lines can have some elements reused for a new program. The bottom line is we don't expect to see a significant amount of stranded assets over the next decade as we transition into electrified vehicles. And we think this is very good news from a risk perspective. Our addressable market across a range of vehicle propulsion types continues to look excellent with our total addressable market for us today somewhere around $80 billion, 
growing to more than 300 billion in the future, an increase of more than three times. As you can see, the market potential for each type of vehicle, whether internal combustion, hybrid, battery electric, fuel cell electric, are all really starting to even up. This is largely driving from the higher potential content per vehicle we have now in the battery electric, fuel cell electric, and hybrid vehicle areas, thanks to the continued product development efforts for products like assembled battery trays, hydrogen fuel tanks, and others. Our potential content for all types of vehicles are roughly $3,200 per vehicle. With respect to launches, we are back to seeing ramping volumes on launching transmission engine and driveline platforms, which are predicted to reach 40 to 50% in mature levels this year, which should generate incremental sales of $500 to $600 million. These programs will peak at nearly $3.7 billion in sales. We saw a shift of more than $70 million of programs moving from launch to production last quarter, which was more than offset by solid business wins. Next year, we should see growth of 30 to 40% for launches to generate additional incremental sales of $600 to $700 million. As usual, we are summarizing all of these expectations of market changes on our outlook slide that is now being displayed. With markets recovering as described, we're expecting to see double-digit growth on the top line and strong double-digit growth on the bottom line in 2021, and we will see continued growth in 2022. This drives from double-digit growth at both Skydeck and Macdon this year, as well as significant market growth in auto and continued ramping of launching business in that segment. Next year should see continued growth of all three businesses based again on growing markets, growing market share, and launching business. Margins will be back into our normal range of 7 to 9% at the net level this year, driving from the mobility segment margins being back into the mid-normal range, and industrial margins getting close to being back to normal levels. Next year should see normal margin ranges for both segments and overall. Leverage levels continue to improve based on continued positive free cash flow both years. Looking specifically at Q2, you should expect to see significant growth in the mobility segment based on the much higher production levels forecast this year, but I recommend being cautious about the impact of the plant shutdowns related to chip shortages. As noted earlier, the powertrain plants tend to lag the vehicle plants in, in terms of timing of shutdowns. Plus, the issue seems to be far from resolved and really is playing out on a week-to-week -week basis. We'll know better the impact of the shutdowns as we get closer to the end of the quarter, but it is safe to assume that the impact to us in Q2 will be higher than what we saw in Q1. Agriculture and access will both see solid growth driving out of that strong backlog and, again, a much stronger market than last year. I think it's important to mention also that both segments are feeling some cost pressures due to supply chain issues at the moment. We expect to see uh, to feel some impact of that throughout the balance of the year. That means you won't see a repeat of the very strong Q1 mobility segment margins. Although, as noted, we still do expect to be up from last year and in a mid-normal range for the full year. Similarly, although industrial margins will grow as they normally do in Q2 and Q3, they will be tempered somewhat based on these cost issues. Hence, our suggestion of getting close to a normal range of earnings 
in terms of margin performance in the industrial segment this year. We will also see continued dialbacks on government support as our recovery continues. I will add, as the lawyers insist I do, that impacts from COVID-19 outbreak and subsequent supply chain challenges are currently not fully understood or determinable in terms of their impact to all segments at this point. So, of course, risk remains. So, I'm going to highlight a few of our more interesting business wins this quarter. First, we picked up another significant program for next-generation battery electric vehicles. We'll be manufacturing more than 70,000 units per year of this subframe assembly for one of our customers as of 2023. Although the volume doesn't sound substantial, the price point of this program is substantial, so it is, as it is, quite a complex assembly, making this quite a notable win for our team in North Carolina. Next is a major differential assembly win for a very high efficiency transmission for a Japanese automaker that we've been focused on for years. This is a notable win given this automaker rarely strays from their in-house manufacturing or correct new partners for this particular type of product. Third, we had a very active quarter in lightweight cylinder head and block wins, over $100 million, in fact, in annualized business. These wins are key as they are likely the last generation of internal combustion engines that will see us out the decades. There's a huge opportunity in these types of programs over the next 10 years. Careful equipment selection, as referenced earlier, will ensure any capital can be reallocated to new energy vehicles as they develop over that time frame and into the 2030s. And finally, a win in the off-highway market for some substantial sales as well. The commercial vehicle and off-highway vehicle markets are both picking up in terms of opportunities at the moment after a few dry years. Turning to an innovation review, I would like to highlight a few great technology developments that we launched this quarter. First, I'd like to share some new product offerings that our Mastodon group has recently introduced. The TM100 is a tractor-mounted draper header that can be used in crops where swapping is required prior to harvesting, but the total acreage doesn't justify the investment in a self-propelled wind blower. The draper header can be mounted directly to a farmer's existing tractor. Next, a sunflower attachment option that can be assembled to the bottom front of our current flex draper header. This is another great example of the multi-crop versatility of our flex draper products. And lastly, Mastodon is adding its own transport header trailer solution, which is really a must for markets like Europe where field sizes are smaller and roadways are more narrow. All these features are great examples of Mastodon's ability to adapt to the needs of the regional markets it serves and a significant reason why we are growing so strongly our share in Europe and CIS. Next, I'd like to highlight one of our innovation hub projects. As you know, the IHUB, as we call it, is our incubation and development center for future diversification efforts aligned to our Lunar 2100 plan. Thermalist is one of our early stage startup partners who we are helping to scale up and commercialize by using our manufacturing expertise, design testing, and supply chain capabilities. Their residential heat pump system can replace a home furnace, water heater, and air conditioner, all from a single unit and at significantly less energy requirements and therefore, of course, emissions. We've been conducting validation tests at our McLaren Engineering Center and the design is progressing well towards an important durability cycle milestone. 
Early trial units will be going out into the field later this year. Lastly, our product development efforts for electrified mobility continue by incorporating innovative new solutions into our e-axle offering. We're improving performance, safety, and EV range with features like electronic limited slip differentials, park locks, and disconnects. These features are both for our light vehicle and commercial vehicle e-axle applications, as you can see illustrated here on the slide. We also continue to make great progress on our digitization efforts across our operations with notable increases in both levels of automation as well as data collection points across our connected equipment to optimize equipment performance and efficiency. Turning to a strategic update, we announced this week the establishment of a strategic alliance as a first step towards a possible joint venture with a Canadian leader in fuel cell technology, Ballard Power Systems. Linamar and Ballard have entered into an agreement to jointly develop and market a fuel cell powertrain and chassis system for cars, SUVs, and trucks up to, class, up to and including Class 2 for sale in North America and Europe. The partnership will have a flexible approach to customers, where some may be interested in the entire rolling chassis system, inclusive of the fuel cell powertrain and e-axle propulsion system, which is basically the gearbox, electric motor, and controller, uh, and is mounted on a wheeled chassis. And others just might be interested in subsections as such. The partnership is really intended to leverage the expertise and skill sets of both companies. So obviously Ballard's expertise in fuel cells, and then our expertise in electric vehicle propulsion, the hydrogen tanks, chassis systems, and manufacturing overall. And together, we think uh, we're really bringing a couple of world-class companies together to, to lead uh, fuel cell powertrains to the market. I think this schematic helps to clarify the roles of, of what each company is going to do. So Linamar is basically responsible for four key areas, the hydrogen tank, the e-axle system, that's the gearbox, electric motor, and controller, the chassis system, so that's things like the frame or unibody structure or sometimes called skateboard, uh, the steering, wheel end, shocks, springs, brakes, hubs, et cetera. And then fourth, the balance of plant requirements to kind of pull the system together, which we be essentially everything in a fuel cell that isn't in the stack, like air compressors or pumps, humidifiers, cooling systems, the enclosure or cradle, et cetera. And then Ballard would be responsible for three key areas, the fuel cell stack, so the proton exchange membrane or PEM fuel cell stack, uh, the, secondly, the fuel cell control system, and then finally various fueling subsystems and components related to the sort of mechanical thermal noise vibration uh, system. One of the concepts that we're exploring is to design the fuel cell and tank system into a package that will replicate the size and dimension of a typical battery pack. The benefits of this design would be the ability of a customer to convert a battery electric vehicle into a fuel cell electric vehicle with minimal cost and minimal challenges around changeover by simply pulling out the battery pack and replacing it with the fuel cell and tank system. The balance of the chassis, including the e-axle propulsion system, would remain intact. A battery electric vehicle and a fuel cell electric vehicle are actually quite similar in terms of operation. Both drive the vehicle off of an electric motor system, which is the e-axle, uh, and in the, in the battery electric vehicle, the power source of that is a large battery pack, and in the fuel cell 
electric vehicle, the power source is the fuel cell system. Uh, that's what makes this plug-and-play concept work. We believe a hydrogen-based future utilizing fuel cell technology is the best solution for mobility, and really for four key reasons. First, it's clean. It is truly zero emissions. Hydrogen-fueled mobility is truly green, generating zero emissions from the fuel source and generation right through to vehicle operations, in contrast to battery electric vehicles, which of course rely on the source of electricity to determine their carbon footprint. Hydrogen can be made from water using wind or solar electricity to power the process of electrolysis of the water. When the fuel cell is operated, the hydrogen is reunited with oxygen to create energy with a byproduct of water. In some ways, a fuel cell vehicle is really being powered on the wind or solar energy, which is being temporarily stored in the hydrogen. Secondly, fuel cells can be quickly refueled, as we have become accustomed to in an internal combustion engine world. Thirdly, hydrogen has a very high density of energy, making it a very efficient source of fuel to power vehicles. And lastly, fuel cell electric vehicles don't rely on sort of regionally concentrated sources of certain minerals, such as cobalt and lithium, which are currently largely controlled by the Republic of the Congo and China, which could create some concerns in the future. We are very excited about this partnership, which we think levers off decades of experience and technology development of both companies to pursue a future of mobility that is truly green. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to our CFO, Dale Schneider, to lead us through a more in-depth financial review. Dale? Thank you, Linda. Good afternoon, everyone. As Linda noted, Q1 was a strong quarter for sales and an exceptional quarter for earnings as a result of the recovery of from COVID-19 shutdowns that occurred last year. It was also a great quarter for cash generation as we generated $166.2 million in free cash flow. Additionally, we were able to maintain our strong levels of liquidity at $1.6 billion. For the quarter, sales were $1.8 billion, up $232 million from $1.5 billion in Q1 last year. Earnings are normalized for any FX gains or losses related to the evaluation of the balance sheets and any unusual items that may have occurred in the quarter. In Q1, earnings were normalized for FX losses related to the evaluation of the balance sheet, which impacted EPS by $0.07. Cents. Normalized earnings, operating earnings for the quarter were $221 million. This compares to earnings of $103.5 million in Q1 2020 an increase of $118 million, or 114%. Normalized net earnings increased $90 million, or 133%, in the quarter to $158 million. Fully diluted normalized EPS increased by $1.37, or 132%, to $2.41. Included in earnings for the quarter was a foreign exchange loss of $6.4 million, which is almost fully associated to the revaluation of financing balances. As I mentioned, the net FX loss impacted the quarter's EPS by $0.07. Cents. From a business segment perspective, the Q1 loss of $100,000 was a result of a $10.2 million loss in industrial and a $10.1 million gain in mobility. Further looking at the segments, industrial sales increased by 16.5% or $49.3 million 
to 348.3 million. The sales increase in the quarter was due to the strong demand and market share gains driving agricultural equipment, the strong demand and market share gains also driving North American access equipment sales, which were partially offset by declines in the European access equipment that is still being adversely affected by COVID-19 and the negative impact on sales from changes in FX rates since last year. Normalized industrial operatings in Q1 increased 14.5 million or 46% over last year to 45.9 million. The primary drivers impacting industrial were the increased contribution from the strong agricultural volumes and the increased contribution from the net volume increase in access equipment, which is partially offset by the negative impact from the changes in FX rates. Turning to mobility, sales increased by 183 million over Q1 last year to 1.4 billion. The sales in the first quarter was driven by the increasing volumes in certain programs in North America and Asia, the increasing volumes on launching programs, the impact of positive FX rates since last year partially offset by the market impact of the semiconductor chip shortage, which is impacting our customers. Q1 normalized earnings for mobility were higher by 103 million or 143% over last year. In the quarter, mobility earnings were impacted primarily by the net increase in sales as I just described, the cost savings we were able to achieve in the quarter, the positive impact from FX rates since last year, and the utilization of government support programs. Returning to the overall Lenamar results, the company's gross margin was $313 million, an increase of $112 million compared to last year due to the same factors that drove the segments. COGS amortization expense for the first quarter was $118 million. The COGS amortization as a percent of sales actually decreased to 6.6%, but on a dollar basis it increased by $9.5 million, primarily due to the impact of launching programs and products in the quarter. SG&A costs decreased in the quarter to $91.5 million from $97.5 million last year. The decrease is primarily the result of cost savings achieved since the pandemic started a year ago. Finance expenses increased by $200,000 since last year due to a one-time foreign exchange impact because of the U.S. dollar repayment and the funding of the new 320 million euro private placement notes in January, and lower interest earned on declining long-term receivable balances. These increases were also full, almost fully offset by the lower interest expense because of the debt reductions that we've been able to achieve in the last year, and the lower effective interest rates, which improved by 55 basis points, or 20% since last year. The consolidated effective interest rate for Q1 declined to 1.9% from 2.5% last year. The effective tax rate for the quarter increased to 26% compared to last year due to an increase in non-deductible expenses. As a result, we are expecting the 2021 full-year tax rate to be in the range of 24 to 26% and consistent with the 2020 full-year rate. Lenormand's cash position was $672 million as of March 31st, an increase of $258 million compared to March 2020. The first quarter generated $224 million in cash from operating activities, 
which is mainly used to, used to fund CapEx and debt repayments. This also resulted in cash flow generation of $166.2 million in the quarter. As a result, net debt to EBITDA decreased significantly to 0.3 times in the quarter from 1.57 times a year ago and from a half a turn at the end of 2020. Based on the current estimates, we are expecting net debt to EBITDA to continue to improve by the end of 2021. The amount of available credit on our credit facilities was $958 million at the end of the quarter. Our available liquidity at the end of the quarter remained strong at $1.6 billion, and as a result, we believe we currently have sufficient liquidity to satisfy our financial obligations during 2021. To recap, Sales and earnings for the quarter was a story of exceptional performance driven by strong market uh, recoveries from COVID-19 and market share growth, driving normalized net earnings up 133%. Despite this exceptional performance, the future is not known, and as a result, Lindemark remains focused on cash generation and strong liquidity. Lindemark had a remarkable quarter of cash generation as we generated $166 million in free cash flow in the quarter while maintaining our strong liquidity at December 2020 levels of $1.6 billion. That concludes my commentary, and I'd like to open up for questions. So, operator is here on the line. If you could open, uh, open it up for questions, that would be great. Hi, Sadie, you're there? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. After the holidays, a little cash goes a long way. The Chime checking account has tons of benefits to help, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and thousands of fee-free ATMs. You can even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. Sign up for Chime today at chime.com goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer. Hello. Hi, Sadie. We're ready for questioning Q&A session. Yes, sir. And ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder to ask a question, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. For our first question, we have Krista Frayson from CIBC. Krista, your line's open. Thank you. Uh, congrats on a, on a great quarter. Just a few questions here. 
you can remind me on the commodity front, what is your exposure like to steel? Do you participate in in some of the resale programs with the OEMs? And I guess um, not just steel, but aluminum and, and resin as well. Yeah, so on the auto side of the business, we uh, have contracts with uh, our customers that allow for metal market price change pass-throughs. So on our aluminum contracts, that were fully uh, covered with metal market uh, adjustments. They're done on a quarterly basis on a predetermined metal market index. On steel-based products, I wouldn't say it's 100%. I would say it's probably more like 60 or 70% of contracts that would be covered uh, by such uh, metal market adjustment uh, programs. At the same time, we are out in the market trying to protect ourselves in terms of our expected steel purchases, not just for the auto business, but also for our industrial businesses. So typically, we would have contracts out for at least uh, you know, the current year or the balance of the year. Uh, so we're in, in, in not bad shape uh, in that regard, but of course, we, we do have to come to an agreement for next year's prices in, in that regard. Yeah, and I would just say for the uh, automotive side again, you know, we on our supply-based side, we definitely would have contracts on the base level, and then we also pass through the surcharge that Linda referenced to our suppliers that comes through the automotive, but we do protect on a contract side, and of course on the uh, industrial side, Skyjack, MacDon, it's a little bit more open. It's up to us to, you know, have our contracts sort of laid out with uh, our suppliers and also protect on that steel commodity, which we all know is, you know, jumped up quite a bit over the last, uh, you know, six to eight months to the last year. So we're really, as Linda says, referencing for like the future. And then obviously that plays into your pricing models and that with your customer base too, because we have that product uh, pricing ability in that as well. Perfect, thank you. And just on the Skyjack side, utilization rates for the access equipment were, were great in the quarter, almost at 100% there. Was this what you were expecting uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, or has this maybe accelerated a bit quicker than you thought? Yeah, I, I would say it's, it's quite similar. When, when we had our call at the beginning of March, we also cited actually very similar levels of utilization in comparison to 2019. So just to be clear, when, when I say 95 to 105, I'm comparing equipment utilization levels this year compared to what they were in the same week in 2019. 2020 obviously was quite skewed, so I think it's not a very meaningful comparison. So we're running at the same kind of equipment utilization rate out there in the field as uh, as we would have uh, two years ago, just to explain what that is. Okay, that's and I would and say that just... April April has definitely taken a bit of a step up. Like we're we're closer to ninety eight uh, percent and in, uh, as much as one hundred two percent in comparison to twenty nineteen uh, equipment utilization for most of April. That's great. Thanks. And just on the Skyjack side, is that being impacted uh, very significantly by the chip shortage? 
Uh, a little bit, um, very, very minimal. It would really be through the um, powertrain side, but uh, very, very minimal. It really would be not material at all for Skyjack. Okay, great. And then the the 1.1 million reduction in vehicle production in your outlook, are you just assuming that that gets pushed out into 2022 or is some of that potentially lost? Oh, I think it gets pushed out. I mean, as I, as we were showing, the demand is very high. I mean, we're selling in North America at record rates. So the demand is 100% there. It's just how quick can we get the chips to, uh, to uh, build the vehicles, right? So uh, whatever can't be made up this year, in my mind, will absolutely be made up next year. Uh, and I would say the messaging from the OEMs across the board, Europe and North America, is they plan to make this up. That's, that's the messaging. Perfect. Thank you so much. I'll jump back in the queue. For our next question, we have Peter Sklar from BMO Capital Markets. Peter, your line's open. Okay, thank you. Um, so on this, on your result in the mobility um, segment where you had this 12.2% margin, uh, I, I was looking back through my spreadsheet. I don't think I've ever seen a margin that high. Um, I was wondering if you could be a little bit more forthcoming on what happened. Like, if you look, like your revenues in Q1 21 versus Q4 20, so just looking at those two quarters, you know, Q1 really only had 44, more, 44 million more revenue than Q4. So effectively the revenues were the same, but in Q4 your operating income margin in that segment was 9.8%. And then in Q1, it was 12.2%. So something happened. Um, I wonder if you could just explain a little bit more that what happened that really drove this high margin in one quarter? Yeah, I mean, uh, there, there were a few things, as, as I mentioned. I mean, I guess in the year-over-year -year, uh, comparison, North America and Asia sales were up significantly. Uh, and in addition, we had cost reductions, uh, and we had the government subsidies, and we had some tailwind from exchange this quarter. So, you know, that sort of explain, explains the the year-over-year -year change. Uh, you know, your your comparison in looking at uh, Q4. I mean, sales were up uh, from Q4 uh, for sure. Uh, so that uh, that definitely uh, drives uh, part of the change, and then part of the part of the impact is also the uh, exchange piece. So that one's obviously hard to predict and and can't be counted on, right? To what's going to happen one quarter to the next. So there was uh, some tailwind from exchange. So you're absolutely right. The 12.2 is uh, an unusually high level. Uh, for uh, for mobility margins, we do not think it's sustainable. Uh, as I mentioned in my formal comments, we suggest that you dial back to somewhere around the midpoint of our normal range of seven to ten percent uh, for the balance of the year. So that is a more realistic expectation, uh, particularly given some of the pressures that we are expecting around some of the costs uh, that we talked about and, 
and also being a little bit conservative around uh, what uh, might happen in terms of shutdowns. So, so midpoint of 7 to 10% for the full year. Okay. Um, and Linda, could you or Dale quantify what the dollar amount um, of contribution to operating income was for that segment as a result of foreign exchange? And also, could you quantify the amount of government support you received? The, uh, we don't quantify the FX piece uh, that relates to, you know, transactional, translational exchange and, and uh, hedging. That, that uh, uh, is not something that we typically quantify. I mean, we do quantify the revaluation on the balance sheet, but not the FX piece. Uh, with respect to subsidies, um, it was somewhere around $16 million in the quarter, and I believe that's detailed out in the, the notes. And most of that did hit mobility. Did you say 16.16? Correct. Yeah, 15.9. Okay. Okay. Um, okay, and then just one last question. Um, you said that a third of the orders that you won, contract wins during the quarter, were battery electric vehicles. Can you, um, like, what is, the, what is the annual dollar value of those wins? I don't know if that's a small number or a big number. Yeah, I mean, it's a big number. We had a strong quarter in new business wins, but uh, it's, you know, I don't have that figure handy. Uh, all, what I do know is we had a strong quarter in new business wins. We're on track for uh, a strong year, and 34% of the wins were related to electric vehicles. Okay. Oh, and, and then, sorry, one last thing. I mean, just, you know, on the big bogey here, which is what are Q2 production volumes are going to look like? I mean, you have some insight because you're seeing the production schedules a few weeks out. Is there, do you have any commentary on what you're saying and what your sixth sense is on how Q2 is going to fall out? <laughs> I mean, the problem is it, it is quite difficult to predict. It's not just us that are having difficult, difficulty predicting. It's the automakers as well. So, I mean, I'll let Jim comment further, but what I can tell you for sure is Q2 impact is going to be higher than Q1 impact. It, it's, uh, it's a really interesting, uh, you're chasing releases. And, and in fact, I was on the call with uh, a customer today, uh, Peter, and really the key is they're chasing microchips, right? And so what the problem is, is you know they, they have their releases at a high rate right now. So they keep the releases at a high rate. Then they find out they can't get microchips. So then they take the assembly plant down, shut it down, and then those releases don't immediately go back to the driveline or powertrain uh, plants that we're servicing. And then some of them keep the releases high, and then eventually it changes, right? And so this is like a constant uh, back and forth. And, and quite frankly, the, the comment is, you know, we, we are struggling to uh, schedule our plant, so it must be really difficult to schedule you guys. So it is a constant um, back and forth um, day to day, it really, it really is that uh, you know changing. And are they um, are your customers building inventory of completed engines and transmissions that you know they can't send to the assembly plants because the assembly yeah, plants yeah. are down? Yeah. yeah, for sure, for sure they're doing that, but eventually that gets cut off too, right? Like because you do right. have chip issues there. But 
you know, so I think what they're doing is keeping those inventories high. And then obviously the whole supply chain is backed up a little bit. So they want to make sure suppliers, you know, are keeping up as well because when they turn it back on, right, they can out-assemble typically, right? They can take a, a second shift and add a second and a half shift, right, and make right. up the difference. So I think that's what they're, when they say they're going to make this up, I think that's their sort of planning to do that um, is sort of the comment that I'm seeing. Mark, you would say Yeah, you know, Peter, as we were talking about, but I think you're, you know, they're really concerned to keep the industry, keep the the process moving in regards to uh, the product and not have, you know, complete shutdowns as we know is coming back out of the shutdown. There's always lots of hiccups and, you know, all of the OEMs, you know, when they get chips, they want to be able to get vehicles and, you know, you're seeing them, you know, park a lot of, you know, more or less finished vehicles uh, in lots that they just need to, to stick the chips in so that they can get them to dealers. So. Uh, I think as we've been talking about it, it's very fluid day to day, uh, but it definitely for the powertrain, for the engine and transmission plants, they want to keep them running so that they can build some inventory because they are hand to mouth when it comes to normal production to the vehicle assembly plants. And the other, the new capacities on microchip, there's a lot of discussion on that too going on, Peter, and, and that's, but that's years away, that's yeah. a couple of years away, right, before any of that can have any impact. So predicting the future is never easy. This one's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. But I would think at some point, like if the vehicle assembly vehicle assembly volumes really are taken down in the second quarter because there's no chips, like at some point they have to stop building engines and transmissions and finally you will yeah. see that. And, and that's, a bit, that's already happening, yeah, Peter. They're, they're already shutting powertrain plants <coughs> down. Okay. Like we did feel an we did feel an impact in Q1, and okay. and we will feel an impact in Q2, and we think it's going to be a bigger impact. But again, it's you know very dependent on how quickly the issue resolves and how quickly they ramp production back up. So it feels right now like it's going to be a bigger impact. If they get going quicker, they may start catching up already in Q2. I, it's hard to say. Okay. And then with Ford specifically, like obviously, you know, Ford is saying that, you know, their production schedule in Q2 is going to be half of what it would have otherwise been. Are you seeing, are you feeling the impact from Ford specifically yet? Uh, yeah, we're seeing it uh, definitely uh, from Ford and also other OEMs. But we're, again, it's not one for one, you know what I mean? Because again, powertrain drive line, they want to, you know, again, uh, their perspective would also be we're going to make that up. You know, that's a strong right. message, so I think what they're doing is keeping us, and probably a lot of suppliers who have been under the gun probably for months, right, running six, seven days a week, you keep those going because, you know, if you're going to make that up, you, you, you can't get an extra day in a week, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, those I were think helpful. the important thing to, to focus on uh, is the fact that demand is staying very strong. So although it's distressing to see these shutdowns and it is disruptive, uh, it will be made up uh, and we are, we can look forward to a strong surge back uh, and a sustained period of uh, higher production. So what we're seeing right now is absolutely temporary. Okay. Um, Linda, thanks for all those comments. That was actually very helpful. Great. 
For our next question, we have Brian Morrison from TD Securities. Brian, your line is open. Yes, thanks very much, and I agree with that, with you on the uh, on the strong demand environment being positive going forward. Just in terms of Peter's question on the operating margin within mobility, <clears throat> I, I'm not sure I fully understand it. So, if I look at your your guidance going forward, your midpoint of eight and a half, you you basically revert back to a, a mid seven or low seven margin operating margin in the back half of the year. So, if sales are sort of constant on average, based on your guidance and cost reductions flow through, what's changed? From Q1 for the remainder of the year to get to that eight and a half percent margin. Yeah, I mean, uh, part of what we're expecting is the uh, the cost impact from the the supply chain issues. Uh, and admittedly, I'm being uh, a bit conservative because we're a little concerned about you know where volumes are going to go. So. Uh, I'm trying to be a little bit cautious on where where margins are going to land based on uh, a conservative outlook on what's going to happen with volumes. Yeah, and maybe just a comment on the cost side of things. Like, you know, as we talked about already, the commodity prices, you, you look at, and again, we got a lot of pass-throughs and contracts, but, you know, when you look at uh, hot roll or cold roll material now up to like 1300 1400 a ton, Versus a year ago, you know, six, seven hundred bucks a ton. You look at um, logistical side um, as well, Brian, where you have, you know, a 40-foot container coming out of China that was probably four thousand bucks a year ago is now seventy-eight hundred, eighty-five hundred bucks. There's just a lot of these cost elements that are that are in there. We have stepped up. I mean, we have really stepped up our cost attack team efforts in here. I mean, we in the pandemic we talked about. Um, you know, uh, you know, keeping certain cost reductions in place, which we've done. Like I think we use travel as a really good example. We use subscription software sharing, like all those things. We are really stepped on to try and mitigate any of that. But there is some reality to some of these cost increases. And and I'd just okay. like to point out that notwithstanding all of that. We're expecting, you know, solid double-digit earnings growth uh, in both segments, but most most notably in the mobility segment, where normalized operating earnings are going to be dramatically up from last year. So, notwithstanding what's happening with uh, on the cost side, we're obviously trying to offset that as best we can. It's still going to be a fantastic year for the mobility segment, just so that you don't get too caught up in in all that. Uh, and what's happening over the next few quarters. Yeah, no, I understand that. It's just the variance from one quarter to the next, that's all. Uh, in terms yeah. of your guide, do you expect a full recovery in volumes? Is it there's a full recovery in volumes baked into your guidance, or do you expect that to, to – does your guidance extend uh, the recovery into 2022? Well, we're, we're basing it on industry forecasts of, you know, what volumes are forecast. Uh, for the balance of the year and what we're hearing from customers and, you know, with a bit of conservatism um, built in there. So as we talked uh, earlier, there is an expectation that some of the missed production from this year will be made up in 2022. So uh, I think that's mo most likely to, uh, to happen, but we certainly do expect to see a bounce back uh, in the back half of the year. Okay, and I think maybe overlooked this for either Dale or Linda, but 
you know, overlooked here is just how strong your front, your balance sheet has become. You're clearly in a in an advantageous position here. And I don't want to ask you about M&A activity because we're not going to go there. But what are your plans with your buyback? Do you plan on getting active here? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, for sure something we talk about with the board uh, every quarter, including this one, both dividends and buyback. Uh, you know, so with respect to both questions, uh, I mean, we did just increase the dividend two quarters in a row, uh, so that didn't seem like uh, something that made sense to do so quickly again. And I will say that buybacks are definitely always an option and one that we would seriously consider uh, based on share values and our expected need for cash. So it's something that we've discussed. It's not something we're ready to make a move on at this moment, but it's something that would potentially be on the table. All right, thank you very much. For our next question, we have Mark Neville from Scotiabank. Mark, your line's open. Hey, excuse me, good evening, uh, great quarter. Um, I think I'll leave the mobility margin conversation alone. Um, thank you. Industrial, <laughs> I mean, industrial segments, um, a, great, a strong quarter, uh, you know, comments are on backlog and order intake, so I'm very supportive. Uh, you're guiding the double-digit growth, but I mean, that can mean a lot of things. Uh, I'm just curious if you can maybe try to help ballpark it for us, um, what maybe your expectations are for that business for the year. Yeah, I mean, uh, I hesitate to get any any more specific, but I have given you, you know, what the market is looking to grow in more specific figures and and that you know we're we're looking to grow market share so I think that could give you some uh, level of, of guidance as to what we think will happen on the in the industrial segment okay. and also I mean um, q1 is obviously a leading indicator for the year and uh, normally q2 and q3 are stronger quarters than q1 yeah no, that, that's helpful yeah it looks looks very strong I'm just trying to uh, put a number on it. Um, and again, I guess maybe just to follow up with the balance sheet, um, you know, is there, in your sub, you're, you're close to 0 0.3 times, I think, is the number you quoted. Um, you're generating lots of cash. Um, you know, is there an expectation that sort of to ramp cap CapEx back up? Uh, again, like I'm just sort of trying to understand like, where you sort of want to sort of operate um, sort of in the absence of M&A, because it does seem sort of maybe a little too low and, you know, Maybe wondering why you might not want to hit the back, hit the get involved in buyback a little sooner. Thanks. Yeah, I, I think that capex is definitely going to ramp back up. I mean, we will be higher this year than last year. We'll be at the low end of our, our normal range, so that's a, a bump up from last year for sure. Uh, and that will continue to build based on the book of business that uh, that we are are winning. We are trying to be conservative, just given the current um, situation, and you know, just wanting to manage things conservatively. So we're, we're, you know, we have the ability to do that, so we're going to do it. Uh, but you can expect capex to, to ramp up on the M&A side. Uh, there's lots of interesting opportunities out there, so for sure, that's something that we. I uh, think would be interesting and we can explore where some opportunities uh, around. Uh, and uh, and then as just uh, noted, um, buybacks and dividends are another obvious use of cash that we're, we would discuss every quarter with our board. Okay. 
For our next question, we have Kevin Chang from CIBC. Kevin, your line is open. Thanks for taking my question, and congrats on a, on a great start of the year here. I'd like to just ask about the, the Ballard uh, joint venture. Um, you know, I see it's focused on uh, light-duty vehicles, and, and you have a slide here about, I guess, the advantages of fuel cell vehicles over, over I guess, battery electric. I'm just wondering how, what, what you think the penetration rate here for fuel cells are. It, it just feels as though the momentum for, for battery electric and the first mover advantage seems seems pretty insurmountable now. Uh, you know, if I think of the ability for fuel cell vehicles to, to gain any real traction, but 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 obviously I, I, I don't know that for sure. Just just wondering how how you view the the, yeah, I mean, the technology Kevin, over time. Yeah, you're right. Ba uh, battery electric have a lot of momentum, and for sure we're going to see lots of growth over the next uh, 10 years on the battery electric side. Uh, and the fuel cell electric will sort of come in uh, behind that. So I'm not saying there won't be anything for 10 years, uh, but I do see battery electric as a bridging technology to fuel cell electric. And because the technologies, in, in a sense, are quite similar, as I was describing, uh, in my formal comments, uh, they're both electric vehicles. They both run off of an electric motor uh, with a gearbox and a controller. All of that is the same. Uh, it's really just the source of power. So switching out from a big battery pack to instead a fuel cell system and, and tank uh, is actually uh, pretty real realistic. And so I, you know, I think the move to battery electric is great because it gets us a, close, a step closer to the fuel cell electric and it is cleaner uh, and in some countries, depends on the country and the source of electricity. So, you know, it's starting to help uh, and then fuel cell will make a much bigger difference once we can get to that point. So I'm not suggesting that fuel cell electric vehicles are going to leap onto the scene in a dramatic way in the next year or two. Uh, absolutely, it'll take uh, you know a few years for that to start to uh, play out. But I will say that there's a lot of interest, a lot of discussion, a lot of uh, automakers are are in active uh, discussion and development uh, around fuel cells. So this is clearly where the next generation is going. So this is a really important building block uh, for us. Yeah, and I think as well, I mean, as Linda said, this isn't like a short-term, uh, you know, idea. This is a bit more of a longer-term play, of course, with things that will be developed. And I think it's really already, it works, right? I mean, let's look at that. It does work, and it's in buses, it's in commercial vehicles, you know, and you also have to look at the whole, you know, um, environmental side long-term and regional um, jurisdictions and governments who are really starting to endorse these type of uh, plays. And, and then when you look at this, uh, just to correct you right away, it, it's a strategic alliance to start, which eventually would become a JV. And really what we're now doing is we're out, we're making a statement of work that Linda sort of described and you saw in the pictures. We've set up a commercial technical team to sort of work together on our expertise and then what we're going to do is define the technologies and now be taking this to the customers to show them this play that, you know, you could have this sort of plug-and-play interchangeability. And so to me, 
um, really another impact that we got to like sort out is the cost factor, right? Because there is a, a cost impact, and then both of the companies are going to work that because long term putting this in a automotive uh, vehicle that we're going to drive around has to be cost effective. So, you know, the start is really good. The the momentum's very good, um, and really I think government and support is very good globally for this. Kevin, you, you need to uh, keep focus too on, on what we're looking at, which is you know mainly around the class two. So you know that's your your sort of you know entry into the heavy duty pickup truck, right? The F two fifty, the twenty five hundred series, and to put pure electric vehicle in those vehicle in, in the pickup trucks, you start to take away from payload and towing capacity, and, and you know those trucks are typically used you know in the you know trades contractors, you know so they're towing you know equipment around trailers around or you know people, for the personal person, I mean he's got it for uh, towing you know recreational product around. So filling the the uh, truck up full of batteries uh, actually limits the amount uh, of uh, towing capacity, and that's why fuel cell we think is a better option uh, for that. Actually, that uh, that answered my other question as to whether you know you saw this you know, leading into uh, you know your, your commercial vehicle offering, and it's, it sounds like that that's the case. If I could just ask one, maybe uh, um, maybe uh, uh, another high-level question with with this potential JV. You know, as you kind of think of it longer term. I get the sense, and I guess correct me if I'm wrong. I think in you know the Asia Pacific region region is where I think they view fuel cell uh, electric vehicles as, as as a solution, maybe more so than we think of in North America and Europe. Just wondering, do you also view this as potentially, you know, if this JV uh, you know ends up being uh, as successful as you hope it will be, you know, could that accelerate your growth in Asia in, in that market, in the Asia Pacific market, just just given. The, I think that maybe they're more readiness to adopt this, this this form of technology. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We think the Asia market is very interesting. It's not specifically part of the scope right now, but we have discussed the idea of expanding the scope into uh, into that region. So that's already something that's on the table under discussion. Yeah, I think the key was we wanted to, you know, take on what we know today here and then really assess the customer side and, and you know, market and understand what it is and then apply that to, uh, you know, a model in Asia as well. Excellent. That, that's, that's it for me. Congrats on a good quarter. Thank you. Presenters, we don't have any further questions at this time. I would like to turn the call over back to Linda Heisenfrott, the CEO of Lena Mark, for the closing remarks. Thanks very much. Uh, so to conclude this evening, I'd like to leave you with three key messages. First, we are thrilled with a solid start to the year financially with earnings more than double last year, sales up in double digits and continued free cash flow. Secondly, I feel like we're making exciting new inroads towards a green mobility future with our new partnership with Ballard and continued strong wins in the electrified sector. And finally, it's great to see all three of our core markets of auto, ag, and access expecting significant double-digit growth, top and bottom line in 2021 after a tough year last year. That coupled with solid market share gains means we are seeing all businesses intersect to paint a picture of solid growth for the full year 2021 after a strong first quarter. So thanks very much and have a great evening.
Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call. Thank you all for participating. You may now disconnect. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.